Today we are honored to hear from Chaplain Lieutenant Colonel Doug Ball. Chaplain Ball serves as the first Armored Division Chaplain and is currently the Yusuf 4A Command Chaplain in Afghanistan. Chaplain Ball is a great friend and one of the most competent human beings I have ever known. I love him and his family and value his insight. Today we are talking about pastoral identity as he has a lot to contribute. He has recently completed a doctorate of ministry at Denver Seminary on the topic and listen particularly to how he sees the historically unique role of the Army chaplaincy as compared to other institutional chaplaincies and the way ahead in reclaiming and developing the chaplain pastoral identity. Enjoy. This is Chaplain Jake Snodgrass and this is the Prodeo podcast where we tackle the issues focused on military, congregational renewal, and missional community formation. I think to begin asking that question, what is pastoral identity? Before we can even throw a definition out there, we need to talk process of getting to that definition. So let me just give kind of an overview that I hit in my thesis on perspectives and processes to get to that definition. And then I'd be glad to give you mine and we can rip it apart here. Um, so two, two basic broad perspectives coming towards pastoral identity. There's an internally derived process or perspective towards this, and then there's an externally derived process towards that. What I mean by that is internally der- derived starts with the individual and context of ministries. The individual is driving this definition of pastoral ministry in their specific context. So pastoral identity, if you think of it from like the CPE or pastoral counseling realm, It deals with how one perceives oneself, uh, the enduring patterns of values, behaviors, practices, and ministry. Uh, One one thesis I ran across said it's individualized interiority, which I thought was a great way of saying it. Basically, you're dealing with insecurities and unsureness on behalf of the caregiver and trying to give them an identity so that they are comfortable with who they are, so that they can minister and and help other people uh, no matter what position or situation they find themselves in. So as I said, CPE, pastoral counseling usually comes from this perspective. And and I think in some ways it's a shame, and this isn't even so much a bash on CPE, uh, it's just really a bash on the rest of the world that hasn't stayed in the discussion. That perspective, and CPE especially, has frankly co-opted much of the discussion on pastoral identity. I mean, if you just do a basic Google search for pastoral identity or even hit uh, academic uh, databases on pastoral identity, you're going to find the vast majority of it is coming from CPE and then some pastoral counseling roles. The church and pastors aren't writing on those things. Um, and so then that's the externally derived definitions. It starts with more of a theological or ecclesiological or scriptural foundations. And those are often focused on roles, offices, activities of being a pastor. And so the few places you find that written on, it, either in academic uh, journals about pastoring and written for the church or occasional works by pastors themselves, such as Eugene Peterson, writing on what it means to be a pastor in today's culture. But that voice is not in the conversation as much as you would expect when you start digging into it. What's concerning to me, I guess, about all that is that we have allowed the pastoral caregivers that are most separated from a historical office of pastor and in some ways most isolated from church communities and their faith traditions to have the loudest voice in the conversation about what pastoral identity is. Uh, and it's not that that voice isn't important, right? It's a, it's a good voice to have in the conversation. Um, but what it does is we reconstruct the word pastoral apart from the historic pastoral role. Um, and so in many ways, I found even works that said, hey, we could also call this professional identity as well as pastoral identity. And as soon as we start saying we could call this professional identity or chaplain identity, and that word would work just as great as pastoral identity, I think we've stepped away from basics of what it means to be a pastor, right? So 
for me, pastoral identity has got to be derived from that external perspective, theological, scriptural, ecclesiological reflections. So the working definition that I came to was really grounded in uh, an arc through the Old Testament of what it means to kind of be a pastor shepherd and then seeing that in the New Testament. So it really comes down to pastoral identity is our, and this is the quote from my thesis, growing acceptance of and faithfulness to the responsibility of shepherding God's flock by exercising roles of prophet, priest, sage, and king within a faith community. You say, so you, you kind of come up with a perspective. You're, let me just make sure that I'm, I'm completely clear. So you're saying that for past, the study of pastoral identity for chaplains, that really the, the voice of growing or the, the study that you specifically did was tied within the, the attachment to the congregation or a life and community and then fleshed out, a, a calling that's fleshed out of that. The problem with most of the discussion is that it's it's been disconnected from the life of actually pastoring or being in community with people. Is that, Am I hearing it? Am I completely destroyed what you just said? No, you, you stated it well. I think that if we, as army chaplains, are going to claim pastoral identity, and there's a discussion there whether or not we should or, or do, right? I know where I fall, but there are other chaplains who will say, no, pastoral identity is not who we are or what we are anymore. We have a different chaplain identity. I think that's at least an honest way to approach the conversation. And, and I value that voice in there as well, because it's a nuances of it. But if we're going to claim pastoral identity, I think it needs to not be divorced from the historical roles and aspects of pastoral ministry, right? Such as teaching, preaching, providing spiritual service, leading a religious community, offering spiritual mentoring or discipleship, right? Those historical roles that a pastor did have to be part of the conversation if we're going to claim pastoral identity in this conversation, right? And I think it's doubly important for the army chaplaincy because we are not the same as a prison or a hospital chaplaincy or institutional chaplaincy. Our very foundation is clergy in uniform on loan to the military, right? The historical roots of the army chaplaincy are grounded in that pastoral office in ways that other chaplaincies uh, or pastoral counseling uh, are not, right? And so if we want to maintain our historical roots, we've got to let that voice be part of the conversation as well. So on that front, you know, when you're talking about the kind of the historical roots of the chaplain course, specifically related to pastors really on loan or clergy on loan to serve as the, that is a, that is the kind of the pushback that I often get just in terms of just basic like chapel community stuff. Like what are we doing in regards to chapels? You're trying to make it look like a church. There's a little, sometimes there's criticism or something specific along the lines of emphasis on like the pastoral role of the chaplain versus you know, like there's always a discussion. There's always a balance between your role as a staff officer within the context of a battalion brigade or, you know, a line unit. And then simultaneously as your role, it's connected to a chapel community. However, I would always see that not to be necessarily disconnected, but based on kind of the argument that you would make. So how does a chaplain, you know, kind of in this unique context, fuel or grow his pastoral identity in a context that's a little bit unique? So they're unique in the chaplain world. And they're also unique in the pastoral world. So is there, is there any guidance or anything that you saw that would be help or facilitate kind of the unique role that an army chaplain has? So first of all, I think we need to recognize there is a bit of an identity. I use the word crisis, but uh, that's probably a little dramatic, right, in my thesis. An identity tension, I guess, in the army chaplaincy. You know, we are asked to be counselors slash social workers in certain contexts. We definitely are asked to be religious staff officers and professionals. There's some institutional chaplaincy roles, what we do. 
if you talk to certain denominations and backgrounds, they don't view themselves as pastors, they view themselves as missionaries, uh, which was a category, frankly, I left out of my research. So when, when I did my research, I, I proposed kind of five identities that I saw at tension in the chaplain corps. And we interviewed a whole bunch of people, did the surveys, had them involved in the project and got data back on how they saw themselves. So in, in my complete data sets from about 93 chaplains across the army, which is a pretty decent percentage, you know, about 50% of those saw the ideal chaplain identity as pastor. And the other 50% would name the ideal chaplain identity as something other than pastor. Um, so we, we need to recognize up front that, yeah, there are different identities pulling at us. And I think if I had included the, the identity of missionary in that survey, we may have gotten to more people choosing that as I've taught this and discussed it uh, past that. So yes, you're, you're completely right. Our context pulls us in various different directions. For me, then, the heart of who we are still has to be pastoral identity contextualized for the Army setting. Um, and so I go, and what my project focused on was one of the Keystone activities, uh, I go to those key activities or roles that have always historically defined what a pastor was. And my question is not, how do I redefine myself as a chaplain or redefine myself in this context? The question is really, how do I do those traditional activities and roles associated with the office of pastor in the army context? So for example, teaching preaching is a historical role of being a pastor, right? In fact, you can't divorce those two things. Pastor teacher is a coordinate term in the New Testament, right? You can't distinguish between the identity of pastoring and the activity of preaching or teaching that they're, they're conjoined. So the question is, okay, if I'm not in the pulpit every Sunday, how do I still teach and preach to protect and maintain and develop my pastoral identity? Well, there's probably a hundred different ways I can do that, right? I can have a small group uh, going in my house or missional community, as you love to call them, right? Uh, I can have a Wednesday lunchtime Bible study in my unit I can have a Tuesday morning discipleship group with two or three guys. I can be part of that preaching rotation. I can support children's ministry as a chaplain and teach kids, right? There are probably a hundred different ways that I can exercise this activity of teaching preaching. Same with discipleship. I can do that no matter whether I'm an action officer at the Pentagon, I'm a garrison chaplain, or I'm a special forces group chaplain, right? It doesn't matter what my context is. I can find ways to do these traditional pastoral activities. And for me, then, that's what protects and maintains our own pastoral identity, because there's this interplay between doing and being, um, right? As I do things, that molds who I am. And then as I uh, develop who I am in Christ and who I am in terms of my calling, that also affects what I want to do. And there's this kind of reinforcing interplay between doing and being that helps me maintain and protect my pastoral identity. In the development process, how have you seen, you know, in terms of, okay, I'm being connected to my pastoral identity based on the activities or the, what I'm kind of being a pastor, okay, like as you've described in multiple different contexts, whether it's, you know, a missional community, leading a group, pastoring a church, chapel service, whatever, or just really in your unit, just really shepherding a flock, so to speak. And that certainly the, the practice develops us, right? You know, it postures us towards that identity. But I, and this is maybe one of my frustrations, but maybe, and it was kind of, a, especially when I came in, is I felt really alone. We have a broad base of endorsing agents. And so, you know, you may be on an installation and, you know, Southern Baptist, we have, we have tons of Southern Baptist chaplains. So I can't sit there and sit there and say I'm alone totally, but because there's tons of us, but like, but for a guy with a, a smaller denominational pool or representation shows up and 
he's convicted in spirit. One of the, you know, the context of pastoral ministry is doing it, leading and serving in, in the context of a community of pastors or on a team or a variety of other things and developing, you know, ironing sharp, iron sharpens iron and, and developing based on, you know, growing and, and developing your theological, you know, positions and things like that. And you get a lot of that from other. How have you seen uh, chaplains actually developing like theologically, but also, you know, in their pastoral skills while simultaneously representing and being a part of multiple different denominations? Wow, that's a broad question too. That's good. So two, two things I think that happen. And I think in order to change any of this within the chaplain corps, as I was talking to Chaplain Soldrum uh, when he was still deputy and I was working up this project, really kept that in mind since then. You need both a grassroots movement from the bottom up and you need leadership and direction from the top down. And when those top down directives and emphases meet the grassroots initiatives and projects, when those two things meet in the middle, you finally kind of change the, the culture within that organization, right? So I would say the answer falls in that, that category as well. One, we need some top-down stuff, and, and I think I'm beginning to, to see uh, working groups and such aligned at religious community and aligned at uh, identity and, and the roles of, of a chaplain coming out of OCH right now, which I think is a really solid and good step, right? But we need a clear definition of what, who are we as, as, as chaplaincy, right? If we let every chaplain just kind of decide which of these identities they're going to own, we're going to continue to be in this struggle. And so I'm amazed as I talk to new chaplains coming in, uh, how few of them have any kind of cohesive idea of what it means to, to be a chaplain, right? Some of them came in because they want to do good things for soldiers and families from a Christian perspective. So they're kind of, you know, Christian social workers. Some of them came in because they love counseling and hated preaching at a local church. Uh, and that, 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 that can work, but that scares me because they've purposely chosen to come into chaplaincy because they don't think it's pastoral. You know, so there's these various definitions coming in until we know this is who we want chaplains to be. And this is how we're going to push doctrine and activities and force structure and emphases on all these things from the top down. We're going to continue to have this struggle with, with who we are. Now, that's difficult, as you say, because we come from various faith groups, various denominations. There's hard, it's hard to define some of this. I'm obviously coming from a very Christian perspective and my stream of Christianity perspective when I define these things. But from the grassroots up then, I have found the most important thing for me is what you and I have done in the past, Jake, and that is working on a pastoral team together and having those opportunities to theologically discuss, to sit down and plan a sermon series together, to sit down and plan a strategy for reaching an installation together. Uh, to sit down and give feedback on each other's preaching in a constructive and, and, and well-intentioned manner. Uh, and it's the peer connection and the peer iron sharpens iron factor that for me has made the most difference. Uh, one of the questions we even asked uh, in the survey I did for my project was, tell us what has had the most impact on your identity. Because the assumption had been that endorsing agents and faith traditions denominational theology made the biggest impact on who people were. And what we found was those things were actually much lower. So for the typical major out of six things I offered them, hey, what has shaped your identity the most? Seminary training and education, which everybody thought was high, was actually number five. And then national connection was actually number six. That's pretty interesting. I mean, because I mean, I feel like, did, did you get feedback from denominational leaders on that regard? 
I, I did not. This was entirely internal to uh, Army chaplains, right? And that's that was from about 143 pre-surveys that I did, uh, both majors and captains, the pairs that were doing the spiritual mentoring project. Um, and so it was interesting to see the overall the overall impact of where people's identity came from, and then especially for the majors, people who had been a little in a little while longer and were farther removed from seminary and their external experience uh, to see uh, where you know, internal experience, experiences we even had after coming in the Army, how that has shaped us much, much more than connection to faith tradition and seminary training. It's pretty interesting. I, I would think, think denominational leaders would not feel that's positive. Do you think that? I, I would agree there. And I would agree that we're also missing a piece there. Um, so I added connection to a faith tradition as one of the keystone activities of being a pastor. You don't often think yeah. of this, you know, if, if I'm a pastor in a local church, I don't have to think about whether I'm connected to my local church or connected to a faith tradition or connected to the denomination. I kind of automatically am, right? And so in none of the yeah. works on pastoral identity did you find that mentioned. Um, but in a couple of the chaplaincy-specific works, uh, it was mentioned as this is an important uh, aspect and element of maintaining and protecting pastoral identity. It's staying connected to the faith tradition. So I think it does reveal a problem both from the endorser perspective but also for us as chaplains, if we want to protect and maintain this pastoral identity, we have to find a way to stay connected to our faith tradition, whatever that may look like. And I know for some of us low church evangelicals, that's a little fuzzier, um, but, uh, but yeah. we still have to find a way to, to tie into that, that broader background of who we are uh, and what we're called to do. It, it's also scary to me as well, Jake, though, because if we say that our chaplain mentors and peers and the ministry that we do after we come into the chaplaincy shapes our identity. Then we really have to ask, well, if we don't have a solid, cohesive understanding from our chaplains, mentors, and peers, and if the activities we do in the Army are out of alignment with pastoral identity, then we may actually be unintentionally building the wrong identity or the unintended identity, I guess would be a better way to say it, in chaplains without knowing it, right? So, hmm. so for example, I listed out 10 uh, activities and I ask people to rank them in terms of priority, wh which of these 10 are most important, and then in terms of the in of reality, which of the 10 are you actually doing, right? So should be doing these things versus you really are doing these things. Those lists are almost flip-flopped, right? So people said in terms of what we should be doing, they listed your typical pastoral activities up there, spiritual formation, discipleship, preaching, conducting worship services. And then when I said, what's the reality of what you do? Those things were all at the bottom. Um, of the reality of what we do. And so if we truly do believe that what we do forms who we are, or is at least a voice in that process and, and an aspect of it, then the reality of our day-to-day -day ministry is forming us into something other than pastors. Yikes. Yeah, that's good. So when I look at my pastoral identity or my pastoral calling, part of it is like part of my calling is I'm, I'm called by God to a people. And then what do the people need of me? I, what does... Camp Humphreys, what do they need from from a from a chaplain? What do they need from this chapel service? And is it and, and then what does that look like? And how is it shaped um, in that regard? And if if I feel like if I am I don't know, if my ears listening in the wrong direction, I feel like I get a little adrift. Call success not success, and call failure. But Jake, that exact thought is what drove me to the ministry project that I did, and it's really what continues to drive me on my good days, if you will, because none of us do this perfectly, right? Like, I, I'm 
very passionate talking about pastoral identity and healthy religious community anytime we get a chance to do it. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of days that I get pulled into other things as well, especially in you know the position uh, I am both at Bliss and here in Afghanistan, right? So like, I think we need to recognize there, there are things that pull us. And so what started me on this was two things. One is I realized in career course that I could completely succeed in the army and fail for the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and that scared me at that time. I mean, like shook me to my core that I realized I could completely succeed in this army career, kind of had figured out how to play the game, if you will. And I could do that and completely fail at my calling. And when I stand for Christ someday, uh, I would not hear well done, good, faithful servant, right? Even though the army thought I was successful and they promoted me and stuck ribbons on my chest and what have you. And then from there, uh, I remember it was you talking to you actually at Fort Carson way back. You know, you mentioned, uh, was it Donald Whitney, I think, who said, you know, uh, pastors are not careful. They will become the pastor that they despise, right? And so I kind of flipped that around that, yeah, the constant pull of the chaplain corps and the army bureaucracy is away from pastoral <laughs> identity. And that if we aren't careful, we will make shipwreck of our faith, as Timothy says, uh, and we will become that very senior chaplain we despise. So you can't do this as a passive thing, right? You can't just passively say, oh, I'm a pastor, I'm going to hang on to my identity. Uh, you have to actively and intentionally fight against the other pulls within a democratic system. And those are things that we can't change and get around, right? Unless we just said, hey, chaplains don't go to get OERs and chaplains never get promoted, uh, we can't change the, the fact that those tensions exist within the upper out promotion system and the context of the army, right? And even if we change that, we would still do it based on position if we have any kind of hierarchy or leadership within the chaplaincy. I think you face the same thing in a local church, guys who want to move up to a bigger church and have a larger staff and be the senior pastor, not the associate, right? If you let those things pull on you, they will ship your faith and you will become the person that you don't want to become. And so I think you're, you're exactly right in that terms. And so... I like the way you phrased it. You know, what then do our communities need from us and where can we go on that basis? And so I think part of our struggle is, is often we talk about the chaplain corps and we even talk about religious community from a very chaplain centric perspective. And I think we need to start changing that and talking about religious community, free exercise, religion, all those sort of things from a very congregation person in the pew, if you will, central perspective. Uh, and from the perspective of the average soldier in a unit who needs what we have to offer from an army readiness perspective, even. Uh, although I don't like religion just becoming the tool for the army to, uh, to address readiness, right? Right. No, that's, yeah, no, that's good. I mean, we are very, yes. If I could clap on a podcast and not disrupt the, <laughs> the microphone, I would. <laughs> that is one of the things that drives me bonkers about myself is I'll find myself like, we'll do something here. And we just did a, uh, this, this whole, this whole COVID thing's been a dumpster fire, but we had you know big plans and, you know, partnered with the community MWR. We're going to do, you know, like Easter egg hunt and all this stuff like that. And, you know, but it was, it was going to get, we're intending to really serve the community, build some, build some bridges, you know, create some on ramps for people to really, ask them hard questions and, you know, build relationships, right? Well, okay. So because we couldn't do it, we did, needed to come up with a way to execute. So we did this drive-through thing and it was, you know, it worked out. We, we, we had way more, be way better response than I actually thought we would. And we, we did not plan for the kind of response we actually looked for. But I immediately got asked, I, I need you, I need you to do a storyboard for that. And so here I am building it, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm writing language 
and I know it's the army language, right? I know that I need to communicate in ways to, to show the value. I found myself arguing for the value of chaplain <laughs> in my storyboard, essentially, right? Like, and I immediately deleted it all. Um, oh, good for you. And recognize, right? Like, <laughs> like, like I, I don't need, you're, I, I don't want to do this. Your UMT did this. This is how they have value. This is how important they are, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, like, I really want to tell the story of what like our volunteers did and how this is equipping them, whatever. And this is, you know, how a chapel community is able to, to be a catalyst for building community on an installation, et cetera, et cetera. So like we try, try to rewrite it, but I, but it's an, it's kind of a natural drift trying to justify our existence, so to speak. So, so that's one of our, our biggest problems is the chaplain core. And I think there's a little bit of danger, even how you phrase the question, which is what do our communities need from us that we don't even necessarily allow the community to find that. And that sounds weird because I know everybody wants to do these research. Let's go talk to people about what they really need or want. Well, from a gospel sure. perspective, we as sinners don't really know what we need or want, right? We don't know what's best for us. And so I find there's a little bit of danger sometimes. Yeah, we should do the work and we should get out there and see, you know, what the actual needs are and whether we can meet some of them. And I'm good with all that. But that can't be the only or even the driving factor in how we decide to go about doing ministry, right? It should inform it. It shouldn't completely form it, if you will. And so the problem in the chapel is right. we bend over backwards trying to be relevant. And we seem to do it in every way except the one way that actually makes us relevant, right? And, and so every two years, there's a new thing that we think is going to make us important to the Army, whether it's assist or strong bonds program or religious leader engagements or therapeutic models of counseling at the battalion level, right? Well, whatever it may be. And all those things are largely secular in approach. Assist is a secular uh, curriculum. Strong bonds program is largely non-religious curriculum now. Uh, most of our counseling tools and techniques are very much from uh, psychotherapeutic models, which can offer us some tools, but it's still not the care for souls, pastoral counseling that's been, you know, effective for centuries now, right? However, I find that really the one statistically verifiable thing that we have to offer that would actually address all the things the Army's concerned about is healthy religious community. Right. Uh, I, I've got a chaplain right now, and you should interview him sometime. Chaplain Stefan working on a research project. And basically he's looking at all the things that the army cares about, suicide, depression, substance abuse, domestic violence, divorce, even physical health. Those are all things that sociologists have studies that say they're positively impacted by the practice of faith and community. And so really we should be doubling down as right. the chaplain corps on our specifically religious role and then investing heavily in religious community. And, and when commanders ask, well, what's the relevance of this? We say, well, healthy religious community is relevant in and of itself because it automatically produces those very things that we want, right? Um, it's part and parcel of what it means to practice faith in community is to be formed into the type of people who positively handle those struggles in life in a much better way, right? And, and when I say healthy religious community, I'm not even talking just chapels. Uh, I think there's a clear, well, not, I shouldn't say clear. There is a, a need for figuring out how to do both unit religious community and garrison religious community, and then tying the two things together so that they're working in synergy, right? It's not an either or, it's a both and connection. And that's how we get at all the things the army cares about. That's where our relevancy is found. It's in being specifically religious and building that healthy religious community in both units and garrisons and connecting the two. And we would make a world of difference for the army. We would be relevant uh, if we did that well. 
when we look at chapel revitalization or chapel renewal, a variety of things like that, or how we want to frame that discussion, chapel renewal or chapel revitalization shouldn't be something that we're doing in, instead of, I would argue, and I would argue because of all the things that you mentioned, it would be a main effort for a season so that you would basically restructure and re reorient the chapel communities to enable, fund, resource, equip, train chaplains to do um, battalion and brigade level ministry really effectively. Whether those same guys are building small groups or they're doing all those things like that, resourced and hubbed and equipped out of from the people of the congregation. And I'm, we can go on to that another day, but like, I mean, just in terms of like, I have, I have like eight chaplains on staff here. They all have battalions. They all have units and whatever, you know, whatever else. Right. And so, uh, but the people who attend our service are their people, right? Like, so their people want to partner with their chaplain in order to, to serve and to love and the battalion and brigade well, and then to, to mobilize them and to equip them for that task. I think, I mean, we have a, we have a lady here. She came to me, she came to me a year ago and was like, Hey, I have a, licensed Christian counselor. And I used to work at Saddleback as like one of their major licensed family counselors. And I would just like to do counseling within the context of the chapel community. She leads world-class marriage, but it deals with like addiction to pornography and all these other stuff. And a lot of things that maybe an, an ACS would try to tackle, but here we are tackling it within the context of a chapel community and religious community. And it's producing tons of tons of fruit. Like people are really yep. growing in that. So, I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot of potential there to, to really, as we develop chapel communities, you know, as religious communities to really impact the installation as a whole. Well, you know, if you look at this from once again, that theological pastoral identity perspective, since I think that's our topic for this wandering podcast. Um, but if we look at it from yeah. that, you know, <laughs> the, the, the reason one of my keystone activities that I list for being a pastor and for pastoral identity is leadership and religious community is because you can't really claim to be a shepherd if there aren't sheep, right? You, you've got to have a flock to claim to be a shepherd. And so when we claim pastoral identity, we're not leading in religious community anywhere. Uh, that's, that's an oxymoron in many ways because we're a shepherd with no sheep. And, and so the way you described it to me is how it should be working, right? Here's a unit chaplain who has people from his unit who attend chapel with their families or maybe they're soldiers and they're tied into that, right? And so when he or she comes to your chapel on a Sunday, it's not a stovepipe isolated event, right? But they are coming there and they can pass their, that part of the flock that is already part of their flock on a day-to-day -day basis as well. And then when they go back to do a small group uh, that's, that's focused on their, their unit, or a Bible study with single soldiers in their unit, um, or discipling one or two individuals in their unit, um, that flock is still there throughout the week as well. The problem is what we tend to do is we assign chaplains to a chapel service that is really just a service, it's not a community. And so they don't really have a flock there. They're not super interested in investing a lot of times in those people, and those people aren't necessarily connected to their day-to-day -day job, right? And so they're not really pastoring even in that chapel service. They're kind of providing a professional service for people who attend. And But then when they go back to their unit, they're not fully pastoring there as well because there aren't specifically religious community activities happening at that unit level. And so I think it's only when we connect those two as an army chaplaincy that we are actually doing the things we're called to do as pastors and we're actually protecting and building our own pastoral identity because we have focus on the flock and not on the chaplain at that point. Um, so I, I like the way you describe that within the Camp Humphreys Chapel. Then. 
yeah i mean and we're, it's a it's a learning thing i mean and it's not I and mean, i think i think we could be if we're looking at this from a perspective of like the entire core right there'd be a guy who'd be like hey i'm a rabbi and i lead a the jewish service on post and i have a unit you know like what's the connection there and how do i flesh that out but i think that's i think all our, our religious support communities our, our chapel communities within the context of our religious support office you know can and should uh, you know partner together to serve one another to make sure that you know people are being connected and serve those things and i i mean i we're thinking through and being a little bit more minded of, the, of our entire population as we're serving those things we I, I feel like even then being able to prioritize the chapel services as your main effort helps create the flow of like flow of a ministry and support all the way down the, the battalion level. So then you're partnering with your core and division level assets in order to work and fund ministry. Just And it just seems to make more sense coherently for, for a chaplain not to have two different jobs. So I often, Jake, go back to some of the things I saw at Fort Carson when we were involved at Chapel Next there together. And not that we did things perfectly or solved all the problems by any stretch of the imagination. But two, two good examples I always use to show how unit ministry and garrison ministry, the synergy flows back and forth. But I tend to think you're right that it's centered then around that chapel community, uh, the body of Christ working there, right? Um, and so we had the initiative, we and the vision, we wanted to have that small group missional community focused on every, every unit on post, right? And we had a couple brigades that worked really, really well in where chaplains kind of own that vision. And so they would establish small groups that were meant to reach out to families uh, within their footprint. And then furthermore, maybe they would do the Bible study that was connected to the sermon series that we were doing so that their life wasn't bifurcated, right? As they went to chapel, uh, they were part of our sermon series campaign we had. And then they would take that back for their both their unit Bible study and their small group curriculum for that, their evening on the weekend study or whenever it happened to be. And so there was a deep connection between their units and that was the chapel kind of pushing towards their unit. We were resourcing them and equipping them and giving them materials that helped them reach their unit. And at the same time, then when they reach people in their unit, those people would naturally connect to the chapel. And then the second thing was more from the unit ministry towards the chapel, which was the deployed spouses group that, uh, that your wife, Heather, uh, really worked hard on, right? Specific unit. How do we give community and help take care of and love uh, people whose uh, spouses are deployed. And so that ministry was going, but then it needed some resources and it needed a place to meet and it grew too big and they didn't have paper plates, right? And so the chapel stepped in and said, hey, we can start resourcing and supporting this unit ministry. Uh, and then that continued on for multiple years. And as they would love on and support and draw ladies into community as part of that really low threat environment of a deployed spouses group that was just focused on relationships. Those women would then want more community and would step into PwC maybe or the if table stuff and eventually then into the chapel community. So then the chapel community benefited from supporting that unit ministry as well. And so those two examples to me always are what I use when I talk about what this synergy could look like. Because in both cases, there was a strong connection between a unit effort and a chapel effort. But the chapel was the one then that could source and equip and train people for that ministry in a way then that benefited and connected it. And those chaplains who were involved in those things were not bifurcated or split personality or whatever term you use, right? Uh, they were able to do that as one cohesive <laughs> ministry uh, that encompassed both, uh, both avenues. What do you feel like chaplains are afraid of? That's kind of no, that's a, that's a great question, actually. Two things that I think are underlying some of the fears, uh, and there's probably some surface level fears on top of these, right? 
Uh, one is, I've already mentioned it, it's the irrelevancy thing. As our culture continues to move more and more post-Christian overall, and I think if we want to know how to do ministry, we should be looking at, uh, you know, say, uh, the UK or Europe and asking how the church is really doing things well over there, because we're going to be there in the next 10 years, right? So as we move more and more post-Christian, it's harder and harder for us to be relevant just because of who we are. And it's harder and harder for us to convince commanders that healthy religious community and religion specific activities are relevant. I think that's one of our driving fears. We need to be needed. We want to be needed. And so we end up doing things outside of our lane and we end up doing things that compromise our identity and step away from the centrality of religion in our role because we want to be relevant. Um, so we've talked about some on that already. Uh, I would love to get to the point where at a battalion command and staff meeting when the commander starts going around the table saying hey what are we going to do about this suicide problem we have and he's looking at all his his or her staff officers moving around the table and he gets to the chaplain and says chaplain what are you going to do about the suicide thing instead of us saying well we'll do more assist training or we'll do more powerpoint briefings uh we would look the commander right in the eye and say well sir i've got this voluntary gathering of people on sunday mornings at 10 o'clock and if we can get more people attending those voluntary gatherings we can really impact the suicide rates because statistically uh, sociologists would tell us this is one of the biggest protective factors against suicide that there is all right i'd love to get to the point where we're, we don't fear irrelevancy and we're willing to put forth the religious and spiritual answers to the questions commanders are asking. Second fear I would have in mind is fear the reality of where the chaplain corps is right now. Uh, we know we're out of alignment. We know that our professed values as a core and the reality of day-to-day -day ministry don't match, as I already talked about with that activity alignment piece of my project, right? Uh, and, and I've noticed over the years, we've stopped even tracking some of the numbers and metrics that would show whether we're succeeding in our Title X mission. Um, so I used to have to submit like a 379R or whatever it was called, right? This monthly report of Bible study numbers and in my battalion and, and groups I did and all these different numbers. Now, occasionally we have to submit counseling numbers. Um, and on the offering control seats, I know we tracked down attendance. But have you ever seen anybody saying, here's the trend over the past years of chapel attendance or number of people uh, tied into religious activities at the unit level. I think we're almost afraid of reality right now. Uh, I wouldn't say the emperor is naked, but I think the emperor's clothes are a little threadbare and skimpy right now. Uh, like I said, the good news is I see a ton of initiatives from the grassroots level, like this podcast, like a bunch of the SLD projects that are going on. And I see uh, movement from the top as well, the OCH working groups that are focused on use of technology, uh, religious community, improvement, revitalization of chapels. Uh, we're targeting the issues, we're starting to bring them to the surface, um, but I think we're a little scared of the reality as we find those things, even though I have a decent amount of hope right now. You can find more from us at prodeochapel.com and click on our social media platform to connect with us there.